Huckabee, the battle for our nation's security, the subtle success of Islamic extremists, and the amazing Victor Wooten performance. That's Drake Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. Uh, thank you so much. Welcome to our show tonight. Hey, better late than never. Nancy Pelosi finally thought it was safe enough to let the President of the United States deliver the State of the Union address in the Capitol. So he came and he delivered a stem winder of a speech this week. Second only in length to Bill Clinton's 2000 State of the Union speech. But except for the most virulent Trump haters, like the Democrat women who all wore white for some reason that still makes no sense to me, most analysts gave him really high marks for both content and the ever-elusive tone. Now, the ladies in white must not be Southern ladies, because they would have known that proper Southern ladies don't wear white until Easter and only before Labor Day. Plus, had they been proper Southern ladies, they would have never been so rude as to refuse to stand for a 10-year-old fighting cancer. Our lines uttered by the president that we ought to work together to make America great, not for Republicans or Democrats, but for the American people. In fact, had they been proper Southern ladies, they would have stood for the president in respect for his office, no matter how much they despised him. And they would have said, bless his heart, throughout the whole speech. Now, do you know what it means when a Southern woman starts or ends a sentence with, bless your heart? Here's what it means. It means you're about to be gutted like a deer. <laughs> but she's going to do it smiling and serving you pecan pie and sweet tea. Yeah, the only thing that got them off their seats was when he actually cheered for them. Yep, they may not stand for a D-Day veteran, a Holocaust survivor, or a 10-year-old cancer survivor, but they will sure stand up for themselves. Yeah. I mean, in the speech, the president outlined a way forward to build a border wall to protect Americans. And to illustrate the need, he introduced families of those killed by illegals who wouldn't have even been in the country had we taken seriously control of the border. Now, for me, one of the president's most powerful moments was his full-throated defense of human life and his bold and unapologetic rebuke of the appalling practice of late-term abortion of full-term babies and then actually killing them after they're born. I'm going to tell you something. Folks, no president ever has spoken with such moral clarity as President Trump on the repugnant and savage notion of killing babies for convenience. Just never done before. Now, to their credit, there were some Democrats who actually applauded and even stood when the president was extolling that we have the lowest ever unemployment numbers for African Americans, Hispanics, and women. But for the most part, the opposition party stayed stuck in their seats as if they had run out of preparation H, and it just hurt too much to stand and sit down all over again. And poor Bernie Sanders sat with such a scowl on his face that you had to wonder if he'd gulped a mustard milkshake with pickle chunks just before the speech. And, of course, there sat Elizabeth Warren, who looked much more pale-faced than the American Indian that she fraudulently claimed to be on her application for admittance to the Texas bar. That revelation reportedly has her rethinking getting into the presidential primary. But in a gracious show of kindness, President Trump has offered to have her lead the Bureau of Indian Affairs. <laughs> and for his part, President Trump rose to the occasion and acted, well, 
presidential. And he offered more than an olive branch, but the entire olive tree. Of course, if something doesn't give in the next few days, we could be right back at another government shutdown, or the president could declare a national emergency, which the caravans are truly becoming, and he could build a wall to protect the American people, even if the House Democrats had rather hide behind their comfortable walls and let you fend for yourself. And one other thing, if you wondered why all those Democrat women dressed in white skedaddled, even before the president left, which is very much against protocol, it was because they all got a text saying that Penny's white sale had been extended for another week. Well, there's been a lot of debate about what is and isn't a threat to national security. My first guest knows the truth. He's a global security expert specializing in transnational threats. He's testified before Congress, and he's an author, news commentator, and the executive director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. Would you please join me in welcoming Joseph M. Humeyer. Joseph, welcome. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Governor. You know, we are hearing so much about what's happening in the southern border, people coming up. What is the thing that keeps you awake at night worried about? Threats are no longer just national. They're not even transnational. They're transregional. So they move from Africa to the Middle East to Latin America in a matter of a week, sometimes in a matter of days. And so we monitor these threats. These threats could be terrorist networks, transnational organized crime networks, or proliferators. And that what keeps me up is that convergence of those with anti-American states. You have talked about that Middle Eastern countries, yeah. including Iran, yeah. have been able to send agents and operatives uh, to uh, Central and South American countries so that they can come up through our southern border. Now, there are people who say that just doesn't happen. That's not a threat. These are just women and children. They're looking for a place to uh, have a good life. Why are they missing what you see from your perspective. I think for the last eight years, the U.S. government was not asking the right questions. It may be, for whatever reason, maybe on purpose, maybe they just weren't interested, maybe they had other priorities in other parts of the world. But now, President Trump is asking the right questions. What are the right questions? The right questions are, where are the networks located? What governments are facilitating these networks? How does the movement happen? Where are the, tra where are the choke points? And he's asking these questions to the intelligence community, so we're seeing more visibility on uh, Islamic networks that are working in South America. Where are these folks coming from? Where are the threats? Who's yeah. behind them? It's Bolivia, Nicaragua, Cuba, uh, Venezuela. It used to be Ecuador, now it's more El Salvador. And these countries have aligned with anti-American actors throughout the world, namely Russia, Iran, China, and Turkey. See, we, we don't hear, uh, except to, to uh, sort of make fun of the idea that Russia, China, uh, Turkey, Iran are involved in what's coming up uh, toward the, our southern border. So there really is a connection. No, absolutely. Let's talk about the caravans for a second. So one of the things that things been lost in the conversation of the caravans is what the purpose of the caravan was. It wasn't just about taking illegal migrants and pushing them through the border. It's actually to challenge the concept of borders and to promote open border policies. Because if you could challenge the concept of borders, you challenge sovereignty. And if you challenge sovereignty, you challenge the Westphalian system. That's what Russia and Iran are trying to do. I think what you're trying to tell us is that this is in some ways a Trojan horse yeah. in order to bring people who do not have the best intentions of making America uh, not only great again, but even making it survive again. I talked to some of these migrants. I was in Guatemala during the period of the first uh, caravan in October of last year, and there were individuals that they said themselves, they said there's individuals from Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East mixed within us, and they don't even walk up to the borders. They're putting... Uh, Taxis, they're put in cars, and they're moving, and they have extra financing, they have extra care. So the, the migrants were actually manipulated in this situation by these subversive actors. What is the future? What, what is the future, and also what is the great vulnerability that we have as, a, uh, as the United States in places like Venezuela? I think we have to understand what kind of wars we're fighting. We're not fighting conventional wars. People that want to see the Marines storm the beaches of Caracas or, or, yeah. or, or Venezuela, that's not the kind of war. This is an asymmetric war. So what's the fundamental difference? A conventional war is a military action. Asymmetric wars are fought on political legitimacy and public opinion. Right now, the United States is in a fight for its legitimacy in Latin America. We have to show the rest of Latin America that we're more important and we're a better partner than Russia and China. And if you do business with those countries, you're going to pay the predatory consequences. And to me, you can't make America great again unless you make the Americas great again. And we have to understand that concept. Is the president 
on the right track with his strategy and foreign policy. He's putting the right team in place. It took him a little bit of time. It took him a couple years to do it. There was a lot of obstacles in Congress, yeah. but he's on the right track. But what I need, I think he needs is a tremendous amount of support from the region. We have conservative governments in Latin America. President Bolsonaro from Brazil, President Morales from Guatemala, President Duque from Colombia. These are allies that at any minute their governments could switch and we have to support them just like they're gonna support us. Joseph, it is amazing. What you've just said probably distills down some of this information in the way that I've not seen anyone else talk about it on any network at any time. And I am delighted to have had you here uh, to give us some insight into the things we're reading about every day on the front pages of the paper. Governor, it's not Truly a delight to have you. Thank you. And you can learn more in Joseph Humeyer's book available at Amazon right now. And find out more about Joseph's efforts at securefreesociety.org. It would do you well to do so. By the way, Keith Bilbrey is standing on our wall, but that's mainly to keep our audience in the building. But when he tells us what's next, I'm going to tell you something. They're going to stay put. Go ahead, well, Keith. Yeah, absolutely. Coming up, Huck's hero and Grammy award-winning musician Victor Wooten and John Carter Cash shares his father Johnny's fabulous chili recipe. Later, discover how Islamic terrorists are manipulating the public. Plus, meet the stars of Palau, the movie. More Huckabee is on the way. And welcome back. Victor Wooten is one of the most prolific bass players of all time. Now, he is the only bass player I know whose bass is a solo instrument. When I play, the band asks me to play so low that no one can hear it. But Victor is the guy that bass players are in awe of. I really mean that. He utilizes his influence to help equip the next generation of musicians, as well as just play. His music camps help people discover their unique talents, and that's what makes him our Huck's hero tonight. The bird doesn't have to go to a conservatory to learn to sing. The bird will sing just because the sun comes up, not for money, fame, or anything. It's really, and I, I want to be that natural. I want to even look at my music that way. But as humans, we have that same natural instinct and abilities also. And my hope is to bring people back to that naturalness, so to be like nature. If you think about it, music is an extension of nature. And nature, by proxy, is an extension of music. You know, it's this very cyclical relationship. So to be able to have music and nature be combined in a center like this really kind of blurs the lines in between them and shows kids and adults alike that music and nature go hand in hand more than we ever imagined it could. And I think campers leave here with a newfound understanding and appreciation of music and nature and the way they intersect. To quote my mom, she would say, what does the world need with just another good musician? She says, we have enough. She says, what the world needs are good people. When I am in your presence, my first thought is to say, <laughs> not worthy. <laughs> But you said something in that video that just pierced my soul. It was so beautiful that the birds don't have to go to a conservatory to learn how to sing. Correct. Correct. That's powerful. I, I say that to, it, to, to, to recognize the fact that that's part of a bird's nature. Yeah. It's to sing. Just because yeah. the sun comes up, let's sing. Not for money, not for awards, right? But if a bird has that, what do us humans have? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's to reawaken our awareness of our nature. I'm trying to bring people back to their natural state. Mm. And right, but in music, we usually are told to do the most unnatural thing, which is to lock ourselves in a room and practice. Now that is necessary, but you don't learn a language in a room by yourself. 
the natural process to get out of the room and have experiences so that you have something to say, you have something to talk about. So for me, the most natural thing on the planet is nature. And so out at Wooten Woods, nature is our foremost teacher as well as our classroom. So what does a person do when they come out there to the camp? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm in awe of what you're doing. Like one of the exercises is very simple. We take a piece of string and we take it into the middle of the woods and wrap it around trees, around bushes, so that it makes a little course. And then we ask the students, if they, if they choose, no one has to do anything we say, but if they choose, remove your shoes, put on a blindfold, put your hand on the string, and just follow it. Mm. And you know, we always have staff and volunteers to make sure everyone's safe. But in doing that, it's amazing what the students talk about afterwards what they heard, the birds, where they felt the sun on their body, all these things that are happening all the time, but really, we're really not aware of it because whatever reason we're looking at our phones or have to be somewhere or something like that. So it, it's reawakening a natural thing that, that humans already have, but we may have forgotten about them. Oh, but then when they bring that experience back to their instrument, mm. they're different. That's powerful. You quoted your mother and said that we've got a lot of good musicians, but what we need, good people. Absolutely. How do you get there? To quote my mom, mom would say, God didn't make any mistakes. Hmm. You know, so it, it's, <laughs> thank you, she's mom. She's right. <laughs> right. Your mother did well. Yes, yes. I want to tell our audience. Appreciate that. This is why Victor Wooten is our Huck's hero tonight. And I want you to check out Victor Wooten's Center for Music and Nature and find out how you can get involved. Just visit VixCamps.com. It's on your screen. See how it's spelled. And to see Victor Wooten in concert, visit VictorWooten.com. I, I want you to do that. Victor, are you going to come back later in the show to play with us? I would love to. Well, if you hey, don't, go, we're going to... Yeah. Can I ask a favor? Yeah. I mean, we always get to play with you, and but do you, Victor, would you play with us like during breaks and stuff? I mean, when... I, can I? Is that okay with you? You know, he just, Victor, so you know, he's never asked me to do that. I have to ask him. <laughs> but I think you should do it because. I would love to. Let's hear it for Victor. I would love to. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, sir. I think he should. Thank you. All right, Keith, go ahead and tell us what we've got coming up. Coming up next, hilarious news headlines on In Case You Missed It. Then, the legendary Johnny Cash Iron Kettle Chili and the life of Louise Plow on film with actors Scott Reeve and Gaston Falls. Stay tuned for more Huckabee. Yeah, welcome back. I tell you, that music coming back was not bad with Victor over there with him. I, not, not bad at all. We may bring him back a few times. Well, let me remind you that in August, I'm going to be hosting a cruise on one of the most luxurious cruise ships on the sea. We're going to be going to Sweden, Denmark, Finland, Estonia, and St. Petersburg, Russia, all along the Baltic Sea. It's an unforgettable experience amidst some of the most beautiful places on Earth. We've got the entire ship to ourselves with the music, the teaching, entertainment, and special events. They're going to be incredible. To be a part of it, go to thegreatesttrip.com. Sign up today. There's still some space available. But don't wait and then wish you had done it. All right, from smelly T-shirts to family feuds that you won't believe, we've got the news that'll make you smile on a segment that we call In Case You Missed It. Most parents are familiar with kids throwing a tantrum and screaming, I didn't ask to be born. Well, like America, India has an entire political movement built around the way that children act when they're having a tantrum. Here it's called the resistance, but in India it's called the anti-natalist movement. Hey, give them credit. Their sounds classier, to be honest with you, but not their purpose. You see, they believe that having children is morally wrong and it puts a strain on our environment. And they believe forcing children to be born without consent is like slavery or kidnapping. Now, I wonder if they'd really rather stay in the womb. I mean, I think there's a point of demarcation for mom and her ability to keep them in the dark. 
which it seems like they may be already. So 27-year-old Raphael Samuel in Mumbai is suing his parents for giving birth to him. I mean, you heard that right. He says he loves them, and he's had a great life so far, but he doesn't see why he should have to deal with school and finding a career when he didn't ask to be born. He claims his parents had him for their own selfish joy and pleasure. Hey, pal, guilty as charged, especially if they listen to Barry White, okay? <laughs> now from our news that nobody really needs to be told file comes this. A university study found that single men tend to have stronger body odor than men who are in a relationship. Women in this audience just audibly said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> a visit to any men's dorm could have saved those researchers a lot of time and money. Now here's what they say that single men have more testosterone than married men, I think it's just because male college students aren't housebroken yet. <laughs> but the scientists wanted to see if women could tell the difference just by their scent. So they had 82 heterosexual women smell the armpits of men's sweaty t-shirts. I just hope they paid those women highly for that. Yep, that's the power of science at work, my friends. Those poor 82 ladies did rank the smell of single men as slightly stronger than married men. I wonder if the scientists also factored in that whole showering and laundry thing that aren't too high on the list of some male college students. Oh, by the way, in a side discovery, the 82 women did say that the t-shirts of divorce men smelt broke and needy. <laughs> I wonder if taxpayers even funded this ridiculous study. Who knows? We probably did. Now, it's said that fireworks were invented in China, but I wonder if this is how. There was a boy in Chaifeng City, China. He was playing with some firecrackers. Oh, young men and their love of fire. When he dropped one of the firecrackers into a manhole cover, the sparks hit the trapped methane gas in the sewer below, setting off an explosion that ripped the sidewalk apart and damaged three cars. Luckily, nobody was injured. And in this case, the methane gas was not silent but deadly. <laughs> Instead, he who smelt it, felt it. That's how it happened. <laughs> By the way, people suffer explosive gas attacks all over the world. I mean, it could happen in Chicago, Italy, and certainly among bean and hard-boiled egg lovers. So the lesson is this. Whatever you do, always keep firecrackers far away from your gas. It just works better. Well, like a big firecracker with a short fuse, we are out of time. But always remember that we read the news. Well, if you love Johnny Cash's TV show, you're going to recall how proud he and his wife, June Carter, were of their only child. These days, he's a Grammy-winning producer, singer-songwriter, and author and he's written a book sharing his family's favorite dishes. It's called The Cash and Carter Family Cookbook. John Carter Cash dropped by the studio recently. Give us a little taste of one of his favorite recipes from the book. Take a look. I'm excited about having you here, thrilled about the cookbook. Oh, yeah. These are actual Carter Cash recipes, Yes, right? family recipes from my father, Johnny Cash's side, my mother's side also. Um, things of my own, uh, my own family. I've been cooking since I could, you know, since I could eat. <laughs> Almost. Well, that's a good time. But, uh, so we're going to make something tonight from the cookbook, one of many yeah. of the recipes that are in the uh, family collection. We're going to do a little chili tonight, huh? Yeah, my father uh, was a wonderful chili uh, chef. And, and um, his chili is very robust. It yeah. had, you know, it had a lot of depth of flavor, flavor to it. Well, let's see how we do it. Yeah. So you walk us through it. We're going to do a little okay. chili making tonight yeah. for the people. Okay, well, here what we have is um, we have some uh, ground meat. Um, and uh, there's also some ground round in there, and um, it's been sauteed uh, with onions and uh, with other uh, seasonings, maybe a little bit of garlic. Now, you use beef, but you could use mm -hmm. venison, I yeah. guess, right? Yeah, I use venison at home, but this is ground beef. Um, at that point, um, the, typically the next thing that I do is I will take the, these are diced tomatoes, and if, uh, just pour all those in. And of course, this mm -hmm. would be, this would be uh, stirred up. And then I would, uh, first thing I would do is I would start with the spices because I want to know what my base chili is going to taste like mm -hmm. before I add, because it's got beans, uh, before I add the beans in. because they have That's your chili flavor. powder, I guess. This is chili powder. 
Now, one thing that I found is important is I use the same amount of cumin as I do chili powder, mm. pretty much. Good idea. Uh, it get, well, cumin, Good idea. yeah, um, and that, you know, that's the way that my father did it. Yeah. But at that point, um, I would begin my flavorings, and uh, this is oregano and uh, sage, salt, and pepper. Uh, and then I would take my peppers, mm -hmm. and at this point, I would cook this down probably for about another five minutes and sort of break down the water out of the, uh, the peppers. All right. And then I would add the beans in. Now, I use a lot of different kinds of beans, and if you look here, um, there's black beans, kidney beans, pinto beans, great northern beans, um, but you can use whatever beans that, that you like or just one kind of bean, but I like to use a number of different kinds of beans. And it would be a has-bean. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a never wash. <laughs> <laughs> Has beans and never washes. Is that, is that a thing? <laughs> uh, probably so. <laughs> uh, so at, the, at that point, you've got your base chili. Uh, my father would add some water, and he would also add a little bit of sugar. I also find that chili, a, a lot of the time... Now, is that brown sugar the, you've This got is brown sugar, All right. yes, sir. Uh, but a lot of um, chili now, nowadays is too sweet to me. Um, my father would, uh, he would take, um, he, he didn't hardly drink any alcohol, but he would take a can of beer, mm -hmm. and he would pour it in. And as you, as you cook it, all of the alcohol cooks out. So if anybody has any... So even Baptists can eat the chili. Yeah, yeah, Is that yeah, what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah. Believe me, Baptists would take it yeah. if it didn't cook out. <laughs> yeah, I, right, I know a bunch right, of right, them, and right, trust me. Right, yeah. It never bothers them, yeah, you know. Yeah, But it's going to get somewhat watery. And now my father always used uh, maize cornmeal flour in his chili, sometimes self-rising. Now, what, what he would do... Um, to determine how much it was that he would put in a recipe uh, that specific day, he would take uh, chili powder in his hand and he would throw it. Just throw it in there. And, and so when you... When That's you, style, but man. Isn't that, that something? Style, <laughs> so I like you, that. When you walk through the kitchen, if there was uh, cornmeal everywhere, you know my dad had been cooked. <laughs> um, but um, he also used some uh, pre-made mixes, uh, McCormick's, and he would add a little bit of that to taste. Uh, also, uh, uh, onions, raw onions, and you take, you sort of flatten this out, and then you add, these are Fritos. Good old Corn, Fritos. oil, and that's it, salt. That's it. Okay. And then, you put the cheese on top. Ah, cheese. Mm-hmm. Ah. Okay, so, all right, so what you have here is you have a uh, Johnny Cash's Iron Pot Chili with a, with a, crusted top, and suddenly we take it, we put it in the oven. For right how long, here. John Carter? 400 degrees. That's what I wrote. And that you want to... <laughs> I remember now. <laughs> and you want to... Uh, I think you uh, took a little of that beer yeah, uh, yeah. a while no, ago no, is what no, happened. No, no, no. I'll, I'll do a breathalyzer <laughs> test right here. But... Um, but yeah, um, you cook it until it browns on the top. Uh -huh. You already have a uh, very hot chili. Yeah, and now, I shall service. Thank you, sir. And we're definitely gonna eat this. Oh yeah, it looks good. It better be good. <laughs> it looks fantastic. <laughs> now we're gonna eat this because there's no point in making chili if you don't eat it, right? Oh, it looks fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm. 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 There's, there's such diversity in this cookbook. It's not just southern food. It's not just chili. Um, my parents traveled the world. My mother, uh, you know, was a great fan of French cuisine and, mm. and Italian cuisine. And uh, my wife's a Cuban-American. And, um, um, you know, so I, uh, she's, her mother has taught me how to make these wonderful Cuban recipes. So it's a very diverse cookbook. There's lots of different, different things. The one thing I'm pretty sure that Johnny Cash never did uh -huh. was make sushi. Tell me he didn't. Hmm. He liked hmm. California rolls. Did he really? He never made it. He called that bait. I knew I loved the man. I knew I did. Well, thank you, John Carter Cash. I, love sushi, but... I hope people, they're going to love the cookbook because mm -hmm. they love Johnny Cash and June Carter. We love Sorry. you. We're so hey, happy wonderful. you're here. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. All right, the Cash and Carter Family Cookbook, Recipes and Recollections from Johnny and June's Table at Amazon and other booksellers. And you can find my guest online at johncartercash.com. His Facebook is John Carter Cash. How original is that? While we continue to eat, Keith, tell us what else we have cooked up for the show tonight.
Well, up next, the facts of the matter with my author, jihadist, psychopath, Jamie Glassoff, stars of Palau, the movie, Scott Reeves and Gaston Pauls. Later, a special music performance by Victor Wooten on Huckabee. some fun with Victor Wooten sitting in with Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. By the way, one of the members of the band, TJ, you see him all the time here, he is celebrating a birthday. We are very happy always to uh, feature TJ. He can play so many different instruments and a singer as well. And happy birthday, TJ. Well, the long-awaited State of the Union address was quite an event, but I've got a few details that might make you see the results a bit differently. Here are the facts of the matter. And from the pages of MikeHuckabee.com, where you can catch up with my daily analysis of the news, comes my post-game analysis of the State of the Union Address. The true genius of that speech was that by waiting until the president could give it in the House chamber in front of the most radical, mindlessly obstructionist group of Democrats in history, all Trump had to do was three simple things to reveal the condition of our Congress. One, present in a thoughtful, bipartisan, and conciliatory manner. Two, list good news about peace and prosperity from his first two years in office. And three, talk about issues like national security and protecting the innocent that until recently at least were taken for granted as basic values shared by all Americans. I mean, he knew that if Democrats, A, applauded those things, they would be seen as applauding him which would demoralize their Trump-hating base. Or B, if they sat on their hands, they'd come across as pro-infanticide, pro-open borders, pro-criminals, and against jobs for all Americans, including minorities. So A was good for him. B was even better, as his opponents mostly chose B. So by standing up strongly for time-honored American values, President Trump established a clear marker to show that Americans just how far to the left his opponents had drifted. There are several ways to tell that this speech was a triumph for Trump, and not just the fact that Nancy Pelosi looked like she was getting a root canal without Novocaine while listening to it. <laughs> Instant surveys of Americans were off the charts. A CBS poll found that 76% of respondents had a positive reaction, 72% approving of his stance on immigration. CNN's poll also showed 76% approval, 59% strongly approving. That must have been so painful for CNN to report that they had to emphasize that while Americans approved of Trump's call for bipartisan cooperation, most don't believe it'll happen. Hate to break this to them, but that isn't necessary, necessarily a negative comment on Trump. They just watched a bunch of Democrats who were so stubbornly partisan that they couldn't even applaud a little girl beating cancer or a ban on killing babies if Trump seemed to be in favor of those things. Now, the talking heads must have also realized how effective the speech was because they were reduced to grabbing at straws to try to criticize it. Like furiously comparing Trump to Richard Nixon because he called the investigations that the Democrats want to launch ridiculous. Hey, at least he didn't call them a vast left-wing conspiracy, which would have really sounded Nixonian. Or then there was Chris Matthews complaining that the president didn't talk about climate change. Now, if the best you can do is to knock down his speech, is to carp about what he didn't say, then your tank of vitriol is down to fumes. Before the speech, Trump's approval rating in the latest Rasmussen survey was up to 48%. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes in the next few days. Now, let's consider what's on your mind this week. We get this from Gladys. She's writing from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and says, in watching the State of the Union address, I saw the president recognize Matthew Charles, a former drug dealer released through the First Step Act. Is this good for our country? I mean, we see stories every day about crime in our communities and at the border. Is this just an invitation for more incidents? 
Well, Gladys, it's a great question. I think it's one of the best things the president has done and truly one of the things that happened in a bipartisan way. There are people who do commit crime, but it doesn't mean that they're not redeemable. What a sad day it would be if we take away from people something that they can earn back, and that's not only hope, but an opportunity for a second chance. Nobody's in favor of turning wild criminals back on the street, but once people have demonstrated that they're willing to get an education, learn a skill, participate in a community and in a society, and play by the rules, there's no reason to keep beating them down because when we do that, the only place they can go is back to crime. I think what we're doing with folks like this gentleman is exactly the right thing. We get this from Janet. She writes from Sandusky, Ohio. She says the New York Times columnist Charles Blow stated in a message to the president, quote, you want to build this wall, you know, this monument to white supremacy as a medieval wall along the border because it's about brown people, end quote. And she asked, how is the protection and security of our border a question of color? Want a stronger border, protect every American, no matter their ethnic background? Well, of course that's right, Janet. And Charles Blow, well, let me put it gently. He's an idiot. <laughs> what else can I say? This is not about people of color. This is not about somehow having a negative attitude toward immigration. Immigration has made our country wonderful and great, and people have brought their skills, their capabilities, but most of all, they've brought their hope, they've brought their hard work. And we have every reason to welcome people from all kinds of cultures, countries, and colors to come to this country and be part of us. And I'm gonna tell you something. If you come to our border and you're burning our flag and you're waving one of another country, I'm gonna tell you something. You can keep your rear end out and go back to where you think it was better, but you don't belong here. I don't care what color you are. So if you've got something you'd like for me to address, drop us an email at my2cents at tbn.tv. That's my2cents with the number two. That's all the time, I'm afraid, we've got for this week's Facts of the Matter. Well, the West is under existential threat from radical Islam, yet many people simply refuse to see it. My next guest explains why there's no avoiding it in his new book, Jihadist Psychopath. I spoke with him a few weeks ago during the holidays. Mr. Jamie Glazoff. There's a lot of things I could say about your book, but you've got some incredible people endorsing it, like Dennis Prager and John Bolton and many people that I have great yeah. respect for and no, would not put their name on this book if it was not a message we need to hear. Yeah. What is it we don't really understand about radical jihadism? So one thing I would begin with today is a, uh, a psychopath punches you in the face and then somehow you begin apologizing. Mm. He orchestrates and, and uh, he devises a certain paradigm where he perpetrates abuse against you, but he ends up being the victim. If you watch carefully, every time there's a jihadist attack, we all of a sudden are apologizing to Muslims because they're afraid of a backlash. You see, it's all very, very uh, shrewdly orchestrated, and we have to keep an eye on that because psychopaths are experts at making themselves the victims, and that's what jihad is doing to the West today. I mean, this is something that's hard for me to even understand why somebody would do that. So for instance, I work for a hero of mine, David Horowitz, at the uh, David Horowitz Freedom Center. I'm the editor of Front Page there. I've worked with David for 17 years. This is a civil rights activist, a human rights activist. David has stood up for so many oppressed people, including Muslim women and children, yeah. organizing Islamic gender apartheid weeks on campuses to try to bring light to the suffering Muslim women and girls that suffer from female genital mutilation, honor killings, forced marriage, child marriage, etc., And yet he is called a Muslim hater by the SPLC, by CARE, by all these leftist and Islamic supremacist groups. You see how clever they are? They call a human rights hero a racist and uh, Islamic, uh, you know, Islamophobe, uh, white supremacist, etc. whereas they're the actual haters. Now, by doing this, they frighten a lot of people because people are terrified of being called racist and all these names. Yeah. So our society is being bullied. Women within the Islamic culture are truly oppressed. 
But we don't hear people on the left saying yeah. there's an extraordinary level of misogyny going on toward Muslim women. You mentioned some of the, uh, yes. you know, just genital mutilation that mm -hmm. is a part of the culture, our honor killings. And how about the silence of the leftist feminists on this? It's so grotesque and disgusting. Look, the producer of my show, Annie Cyrus, my show's The Glazoff Gang, she's the producer, former child bride that escaped Iran. And she has dedicated her life to trying to help the people that were left behind, the girls that were left behind, the women that were left behind. We're fighting on behalf of Muslim women and girls that are suffering under Islamic gender apartheid. Maide Hojabri, an 18-year-old Iranian girl, is in prison today because she was dancing on social media without her hijab. Where's the Me Too movement? Where are the leftist feminists to stand well, up for they? her? Why, why don't they speak? Why didn't the media say anything about this? And so this is the left governor. My parents escaped from the Soviet Union when I was a little kid. They were um, dissidents and stood up to, against the Soviet Empire. When I grew up, I began to see this species called the left. And the left was trying to defend and exonerate the regime that killed millions of my people. And so I studied the left my whole life trying to understand them. Governor, leftist feminists do not care about women and girls. Where is Kathy Griffin, Chelsea Handler, Whoopi Goldberg, you know, Joy Behar? They care so much about women. They're silent because what leftist feminists want is the destruction of this host democratic capitalist society. Their real agenda is to destroy this society. Women's rights to them is just a tool and a weapon to attack this society. So they don't but, really care about women. That's Jamie, why they're silent. If I were to ask Joy Behar or Whoopi Goldberg or any of these people, do you want to destroy the country and the culture? Yes. They would say, absolutely not. We want mm. to make it great. Mm -hmm. So what is the disconnect? Because clearly there is one. If they're not speaking out about these abuses of women, and they're maybe contributing to this destruction of culture. Absolutely. But they don't understand that they are. They don't believe that they are. Yes, they want a great America, but they want an America that they will build on the ashes of the one they want to destroy. Mm. This is the key. If a leftist admits that there is a greater evil out there attacking our society, guess what the next step is? Admitting that our society is better and that our society is worth protecting and defending. They can't make that step. You see, because this is the oppressive society. They want to destroy this society. So the victims of adversary totalitarian cultures have to be hidden. It's why Noam Chomsky, for instance, was denying the, the refugee reports from Cambodia. It's why the leftist intellectuals throughout the Cold War were denying the Gulag Archipelago, were denying what was happening under the Soviet regime and under communism. It's simply the new chapter. Today, it's the romance with Islamic Jihad. Well, it is a frightening book, it is an alarming book, but I'll tell you, it is a very powerful book Thank for you. every American to read. Thank you. This must-read book, Jihadist Psychopath by Jamie Glazoff. It's at Amazon, other booksellers right now, and you can find the book and my guest podcast at jamieglazoff.com. The address is right there on your screen. Write it down so you spell it right. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Jamie Glazoff. Now, I can see Keith is about to lose his mind over there if I don't let him tell us what's coming up next. So go ahead, Keith. All right, coming up, stars of Palau the Movie, actor Scott Reeves and Gaston Pauls. Then Grammy Award-winning Victor Wooten performs on Huckabee. Luis Palau was born in a small town in Argentina. He committed his life to sharing the gospel and went on to become one of the world's most influential Christian leaders. Now a new movie is bringing his inspiring life story to the big screen. Here's a little clip from the film. And the life I now live in, the flesh I live by faith. Please. One of these days, you're going to dig a hole so deep, none of us will be able to pull you out of it. Do you have any idea how this makes me look? Please welcome the stars of Palau the Movie, 
Gaston Pauls and Scott Reeves. I'm very excited about this film because I've known Luis Palau for quite some time. One of the most remarkable people ever in the world. Mm. So how did you guys first find out about his story, get cast for this film? Gaston, I'll start with you. Well, uh, I received a phone call from Luis maybe 10 years ago, and he thanked me for a documentary that I have done uh, about uh, festival that he had made 16 years ago in, in Argentina. At, at the end of the conversation, he said something like, and that God was going to meet us together again. So two years ago, I received a phone call from Miami, and someone of his association told me that they were thinking about doing a movie about Luis, and they were considering me for the main role, so that's why I'm here. We came, I mean, Luis and I, from the same country, Argentina. You know, Scott, you have uh, appeared in so many television shows and movies. You've been on a lot of daytime uh, soaps, and a lot of people will say, I know that guy <laughs> from a gazillion things you've done. You play the part of Ray Stedman. I do. Who is a very close associate of... Luis Palau. Yeah, he was he was very integral in uh, integral in uh, Luis coming to the states. Brought him to the states. He was a, an evangelist from Palo Alto, California, who was very missions oriented and uh, and and globally oriented. And uh, he just had a way with um, mentoring young men and encouraging young men and being a part of their lives. So it was it, I was very honored to get to be a part of uh, such a legacy piece honoring. Luis. You know, sometimes a biography <clears throat> has so much power that people think it's fiction because there's no way this could be a real story. Yes. But in this case, I mean, this is the real story Absolutely. of a guy that many of us have admired for decades, and he's such a powerful figure, bigger than life in so many ways. Yes, yes. And, and I met him two, two years ago, and I could see his, I always say this, but I want to say it again. I could see his humility, his humanity. So the only thing that I had to do was put that in the movie. You know, uh, one of the things a lot of people may not know, Luis is struggling right now. He's mm -hmm. 84 years old, diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I had a conversation with him today. He has a book coming out in August, but he has such the most wonderful outlook about his life. And he's still here, and he's been able to see the movie up to this point. And, um, and so I think that's just, you know, kind of a statement right there of, you know, God had a plan and, and he was going to see it through. But he, I think he, from what we've heard, he, he's ready. Yeah. He's, he's, he's ready to, you know, kind of go and see, you know, who he's been talking about for his entire life and, and pointing people towards. Very few people have had the impact that he has had. What an honor to have you guys here to talk about the film and his incredible life. And the film, Halal, the movie, opens in the U.S. as well as in Central and South America the first weekend of April. You can find out more, find out where to see it, and I hope you will. Mark this down for April. Go see it at palaudthemovie.com or on Facebook at Palau Movie. Don't miss it. Keith, tell us what we're about to do as we bring this train into the station. Oh, you're going to love it in just 60 seconds. Victor Wooten performs a version of Amazing Grace you will forget. Huckabee's coming right back. Before Victor Wooten shares his stunning skills on the bass guitar, I want to remind you that Victor and I have a great performance, well, his part is great, of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, and it's exclusively on Huckabee.tv. Be sure, drop by. Go online, check it out at Huckabee.tv. Now, here's Victor Wooten to perform Amazing Grace.